Romans chapter 11. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scriptures in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so they could not see, and ears so they could not hear, to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a, a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over these branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut off 
cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted, in, grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the fun, full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Just as, just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Father, we pray as we um, tread onto holy ground and onto sensitive areas, not only of biblical understanding, but of political significance in the world in which we live today. We pray uh, for your grace and your mercy that we might say and hear uh, with uh, ears and uh, tongues that have your wisdom. And so we open our hearts and minds to you, and we thank you that this is a mystery, uh, a secret that you have revealed in your word. Help us to grasp that mystery as we look at this chapter tonight, we pray. Amen. Okay, Romans 9 to 11. How are you doing? <laughs> Has God rejected Israel? That's the question that the chapter open, opens with, did God reject his people? I wonder how many of you have asked that question today. I mean, amidst all the uncertainties of life, your health, your job, your relationships, academic exams, money, housing, holiday destinations, concern for Haiti or the homeless, your concerns for your own family, well-being of your guinea pigs. I mean, how high on your agenda has God's rejection or non-rejection of Israel been? My guess, other than for a very few of you, that it may not be absolutely top of your agenda. Uh, and so I um, approach this sermon uh, with some caution. I want to avoid saying with great certainty 
things about which many people, including me, are profoundly uncertain. <laughs> and one of the dangers of being in a pulpit where you're six feet above contradiction is that you can be extraordinarily certain about things of which you are actually uncertain. So I proceed with some caution. Really, when you look at Romans 11, you have got to choose between what is known as the replacement theory advocated most forcibly today, I suppose, by Tom Wright uh, as, um, uh, as convincingly as anyone, the Bishop of Durham, N.T. Wright, or you can hold that in some sort of way God is still working his purposes out with the Jewish people as a racial entity. Here in Oxford, that view is powerfully argued um, in a moderate kind of way by Simon Ponsonby, the theologian based at St. Aldate's in his book, And the Lamb Wins. I admit that I approached this series of sermons, approaching Romans 9 to 11, as a pretty much persuaded replacement theorist. I'm not quite so sure uh, now as when I started reading all the books about a month ago. Uh, look, for instance, at Romans 11, verse 26, because it does shout rather loudly at us, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, there really is a divide amongst scholars on this point, and it's no use pretending that there's not, and it's a divide which leads to so all sorts of implications. For instance, if all Israel will be saved means, as some think, that every Jew alive at Christ's return will be saved regardless of their faith in Jesus, an extreme view, but a, a view taken by some, and that the restoration, therefore, of the state of Israel in 1948, which is, they say, the final fulfillment of the Old Testament promises concerning the land, the promised land, then a political position which is staunchly pro-Israel will be adopted. It is, of course, so adopted by many, uh, especially, I suppose, in the United States, and it results, as we all know, in a powerful alliance between the Jewish lobby and uh, the so-called evangelical lobby that takes that view. And, of course, it results in a great deal of United States and Western support for the state of Israel, Bucks megabucks flow into Tel Aviv, or have done over the last 60 years. Now, I've oversimplified that, point, that viewpoint to make my point, and there are many varieties of that view. If, on the other hand, you take the view, equally extreme, some might say, that all Israel will be saved means all God's people will be saved, that is, all who are by faith children of Abraham, Jew and Gentile, i.e. the church, then you tend to think that there is no particular significance in the restoration of the state of Israel. And you, if you take this view, are appalled not so much by the shocking treatment meted out to Jewish people for 2,000 years, although you certainly should be shocked by that. Nor are you so shocked by the suicide bombers in Jerusalem nor by the rockets fired from Gaza into Israel, but you are shocked by the oppression of the Palestinian people by the rulers of the new state of Israel. And you may take that view even though you have a great deal of sympathy for Israel 
surrounded as it is by hostile nations. So we are in extremely tricky territory here. And many will have come to this passage and perhaps even to church this evening with teachers, with teaching from preachers and academics on one side or the other. You may be persuaded already and you won't be open to particularly to persuading other way because this is uh, fundamental to some people's Christian background and upbringing. And so you will be thinking not so much whether I'm right or wrong or whether or to the extent to which I'm in a muddle about the whole thing. <laughs> Others, of course, will be genuinely puzzled and share with me a kind of healthy agnosticism about the state, the, the significance of the state of Israel. I thought, um, as I was having lunch with him uh, last week, that I would talk to a member of our church from a Jewish background who's now a Christian, Stan Rosenberg, who's been writing the notes uh, for us on Romans uh, 1 to 8 in particular for our fellowship groups, and therefore been doing some work on Romans. So I said to him, Stan, as, a, as someone from a Jewish background, now a Christian, what do you think the significance of Romans 11 is and, uh, and, uh, and the significance of the state of Israel? Of course, I thought I was going to an expert. I was bound to get an answer. He looked at me in his inimitable fashion and said, not a clue, Andrew. Which <laughs> was extremely helpful. It's interesting, actually, that normally during my sermon preparation, perhaps rather like you, if you write your, as you write your essays, uh, the pile of books beside my laptop at the beginning of the week tends to get smaller and smaller uh, as the week goes on, as I begin to make sense of the text before me. I found during the last two weeks, as I've had two weeks to work on the sermon, that the pile has actually got higher and higher as I've had to take in uh, different people's viewpoints. Let me take you um, quickly through, I want to sort of just to, to divide the sermon into, those are kind of introductory marks, just into two, two sections here. I want to part one, just to take you quickly through chapter 11 and establish some things about it. And then just very quickly at the end, share with you what I think. And not for a moment do I suppose this is a final word. Let me take you through chapter 11 first of all. There are, I think, three things that, of which we can be certain. There are three things of which we can be certain. The first is this, that the Israel uh, of God uh, cannot mean every Israelite, every Jew. For we've already seen in chapter 9 that not every natural descendant of Abraham is a child of the promise. We've seen that in relation to Esau, for instance. Uh, we've seen, so it cannot mean all Israel in the sense that every Jew ever will be saved, for Paul has explicitly explained that that cannot have been the case right from the start. Secondly, we already know that it was God's intention from the start, from the promise to Abraham himself, and throughout the word of the prophets, to gather to himself those who were not racially his people, i.e. it was always God's intention that the promise would be extended to the Gentiles. That's why we're here. We wouldn't be here if that had not been the case. And thirdly, we know from the Old Testament that a relatively small, but certainly some Jews, a remnant is what it's called, will be saved. 
So those are three things of which we can be sure. Not everybody, just because they're Jewish, will be saved. It was always God's intention to save Gentiles, non-Jews. But a remnant, Jews, will be saved. Now, those are pretty unarguable points. In chapter 10, we have seen how that situation broke Paul's heart, how he found it so hard uh, as a Jew to see so many of his people turning their backs on the promise and rejecting the Messiah. And he called for the believers in Rome in chapter 10 not only to confess Jesus as Lord as Gentiles as they turned from pagan religion to the gospel, but to go out into the world to tell people, Jew and Gentile, in fact, earlier in Romans he said to the Jew first, to tell them uh, the gospel. We also have that commission, as I said when I preached on Romans 10. And so in chapter 11, he grapples with the question of Israel's ultimate destiny, something that was of great concern to him because, of course, he was Jewish. He refutes any notion that God has abandoned all Jews, and this is a really important point to make. Perhaps it was circulating in Rome amongst Gentile Christians that since the Jews crucified Jesus, so they said, all Jews were condemned. That is nonsense, says Paul, since he himself is clearly both a Jew and a follower of Christ. He himself is a saved Jew. Therefore, there is not rejection of the Jewish nation per se. Rejection of the gospel by Jewish people is a common feature of Jewish history. But God always saves a remnant. That's what he did throughout the Old Testament. That is what he's done and is doing today. Paul uses the example of Elijah and the 7,000 faithful prophets as an example. There, Elijah thought he was the only one, but he wasn't the only one. Perhaps Paul was tempted to think, well, I'm the only one, but he wasn't the only one. There will be many who will be saved. The truth is, of course, as he explains here in chapter 11, that God has, respect, has respected the rejection of the gospel that has been uh, common to the Jewish nation. It's called here hardening their hearts. Uh, hardening their hearts for a greater purpose. This is puzzling, and please, if you haven't listened to the other two sermons on Romans 9 and 10, please go back to the website and catch up on those. The point is that both God's predestined will and Israel's use of its free will are at work here. And though we struggle with that, it is something that Paul clearly teaches in the, chapter, in the chapters here. There is a sense of God's predestination on his people. There is a sense of God's people choosing whether they will believe in God or not. From verse 11 of chapter 11 onwards, he goes on to explain the purpose of Israel's hardness of heart. Why did God harden their hearts? And it was so that salvation might come to the Gentiles, so that the message of the gospel would go to the whole world. Imagine if Israel had accepted Jesus as the Messiah. He would have become the national hero. He would have become the Savior just for Israel. The great Old Testament promises that salvation was to be extended to all nations would have been lost. Surely, says Paul, as the people of Israel see millions flocking into God's kingdom, they will come to see that that is where they too should be, 
jealousy is the word that he uses to describe. They will want to be recipients. They will be jealous of God's grace flowing to Gentiles and will come uh, to their Messiah. And of course, that does happen. We do see Jewish people becoming Christians. I recall one Jewish friend uh, many years ago saying to me when he became a Christian that the most Jewish thing that he ever did was to become a Christian. So Paul rejoices at the first fruits of what he longs to be a mighty harvest of Jewish believers. He anticipates in this uh, example of the olive tree the grafting in again of many branches that are currently broken off. And so eventually, with, through those illustrations, we come to verse 25 and 26. So all Israel will be saved. David Seacombe from George Whitfield College in Cape Town is one of those who thinks the restoration of the state of Israel has great significance. He writes this, and I quote from his commentary on Romans, the hardening of Israel is partial and temporary. He seems to see the new covenant promise, prophesied by Jeremiah to forgive, their, to forgive sin, to create a new heart in people, coming true in our generation. So he goes on to say this, this new covenant is necessary because of the rebellious hearts of the people and can therefore never be annulled by sin. It is in effect a promise to remove the sinfulness of the nation. Therefore, Israel remains an elect race and will be saved as a people in the fullness of time. This does not mean, he says, that every Jew will be saved, nor necessarily every Jew of the last generation. It means that Israel, all Israel, along with its leaders, will turn to Christ. The Israel of promise will be complete, and this will in some way signal that the end has come. So he sees the events of history there working out and interprets them as being an indication that the end is coming. That's a good expression, actually quite a moderate expression of those who believe the significance of the restoration of Israel to some extent is a fulfillment of prophecy. Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, wrote his uh, incredibly uh, erudite doctorate on Romans 9 to 11. We should have asked him to come and preach on it, probably. And he will have none of this theory at all. He has written extensively about what he calls his own pilgrimage from the established, generally held scholarship to what he calls his new perspective. It's a, it's a very significant and important um, piece of writing, of, of contemporary theological reflection. If you Google N.T. Wright, uh, you can read all about it, particularly if you go to what he calls his pilgrimage. It's a very helpful, not particularly long article that you might want to read. In his popular commentary on, in the Paul for Everyone series, which I think quite a lot of people use, he makes this scholarship slightly more accessible to us. And he is anxious to agree that Paul is very concerned indeed that the Gentiles in Rome do not think that they have replaced the Jews in God's affection. He's most anxious that they should understand that because that was very easy for them, to join a kind of anti-Jewish crusade, a pogrom. That was a temptation for them to do the jump on the bandwagon of blaming the Jews for everything. 
For Paul, anti-Semitism of that kind is utterly ruled out. Utterly ruled out. And that actually is behind some of what Paul is writing here in Romans chapter 11. Most anxious that the Gentile Christians should not jump on the bandwagon of persecution of Jewish people because, of course, of this accusation. Not only were, they, were pagan religions hostile to them, but the Christians jumped on the bandwagon saying, but the Jews crucified Jesus. Paul will have none of that. The Gentiles must not think that they have replaced the Jewish people in God's affections. Not at all. But equally, he argues that Gentile Christians are not second-class Christians. Look at verse 25 for a minute, where he very significantly calls them brothers, Adelphoi. Always before, he's talked about his, his brothers as being those of the Jewish nation, his brothers of the flesh. But here he uses this powerful word, Adelphoi, to describe those who are his brothers in the faith, Gentile believers. Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians are equally born again, part of God's kingdom, part of the covenant community. Paul's brothers, according to the flesh, may be Jews, but now in Christ, as he argues so well in other of his epistles, there is no Jew or Gentile in Christ. So he says the mystery, the mystery is a revealed secret. The word mystery means revealed a secret in Paul's writing. All Israel, according to Tom Wright's understanding of it, all Israel in the sense of all those, Jew and Gentile alike, who love Christ, who believe that Jesus is Lord and, uh, and confess Him with their lips and believe that God raised Him from the dead, all those, as described in Romans 10, will be saved. And in Galatians 6 verse 16, very significantly, Paul clearly uses the term Israel of God to refer to all those who believe, Jew and Gentile. Any special privilege coming to Israel, the nation, is ruled out by this understanding. Now, this replacement theory rests on a very high view of the achievement of the cross. When Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross, advocates of this theory would argue that Jesus died as the representative of Israel. In a sense, at that moment, He is Israel. He dies for the sins of the people of Israel, for the covenant people. He is their Messiah, fulfilling the demands of their law, paying the price for Israel's disobedience and failure, thus cancelling the law. In that sense, the end of the law as Paul has used that term. You see, it is not just that the church replaces Israel as the receiver of the, of the promise. It's not just that. It is about the efficacy, if you like, of the atonement itself, that Christ has died to fulfill the law, abolishing the distinction between Jew and Gentile, so that all who put their trust in Him can come flooding into the kingdom. Now, there is a great deal more that could be said. So, those are the two theories, if you like. At this point in my preparation, I closed all my books <laughs> and I decided that I would uh, just spend the last uh, few minutes telling you what I think, and you can do what you like with it. It's slightly um, 
I slightly, uh, I slightly kind of abandon the habit of a lifetime, I hope. I try to only put the things that I think into my illustrations rather than to what I might. I try to tell you what the Bible says rather than what I think. But I, I, I thought I'd share that, this with you this evening. I do think that Jesus' death on the cross is the fulfillment, the telos of the law. And I agree with Peter in Acts 4, chapter 12, as I'm sure many of, all, perhaps all of you who are Christians here this evening do, that there is no other name by which we must be saved. So every Jew and Gentile who gets into heaven will be there because of the blood of Christ, not because they have Jewish blood coursing in their veins. We are saved by the blood of Christ. I do believe that if you adopt the replacement theory, that it is quite possible to believe that the church is the new Israel, and there is no significance whatever in the restoration of the state of Israel. You can take that view. The plight of the oppressed Palestinians should be a major concern for all Christians all around the world. And I don't think it's acceptable to excuse the injustices of the secular state of Israel against the Palestinians on the grounds of the existence of that state being fulfillment of prophecy, nor indeed actually in, uh, on the basis of their threatened nationhood. So the wrong actions of Israel, the wrong actions of Israel should be condemned every bit as clearly as we condemn Palestinian bombers blowing up buses or Mugabe's tyranny in Zimbabwe or previously Saddam's horrors in Iraq. But equally, we should be quick to support and praise when Israel does right, as of course it often does. But I'm strangely aware that all that is somehow a little bit too neat. We know that God's ways are not our ways. Even Paul ends this chapter by saying, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? What our minds cannot hold together, free will and predestination uh, is an example, for instance. The mind of God can hold together. So it seems to me that we should be very careful not to say that he has definitely finished working with the Jewish nation. We should be very wary about saying that. Perhaps the restoration of Israel is one more chance for his beloved people. That is actually the view that Simon Ponsonby takes and argues, uh, or at least raises the question, should we see the recreation of the state of Israel as God once again opening the door, leaving the door open for his people to return to him, his beloved people to return to him, to show again that they will keep the covenant demands outlined in the book of Deuteronomy, for instance. One more chance for the beloved people. Is it almost like another return from exile, during which he longs for them to turn to him, as he has, of course, from day one? Is it not possible, at least, that God is still doing something here in relation to the salvation of, of the world around which we find it difficult to get our minds? For he is the Lord of history. Now, as I said at the, when I prayed at the beginning, we are treading on holy ground and like Moses before the burning bush, we should be only too quick uh, to take off our Christian sandals and our Christian presuppositions and proceed with great humility.
The oppressed and the poor on both sides must be cared for in Christ's name. The protagonists on both sides need to be heard by Christians and to know that they are heard by Christians. And there are some wonderful people working in the Middle East in that way. We've had some of them as guests here at our church in recent years. Jewish, Messianic Christians, and Gentile Christians must continue to be the agents of peace and understanding in bringing together Jew and Palestinian. Positions, both theological and political, should be taken up with humility and caution. So, Romans 9 to 11 teaches us, in conclusion, that this is God's world. It's God's plan, it's God's history, and He knows what He is doing. Sometimes we are like walkers in the night without a torch, seeking our way forward, and yet He knows the way forward. For Him, He knows the light. So like the prophet Micah, perhaps in response finally to Romans 9 to 11, we do well, as Micah challenges us to do, to love mercy, to do justly, and to walk humbly before Him, trusting in His justice, trusting in His mercy, His forgiveness, and His providence. And in so far as God gives us strength, seek to show the love of Christ in the world to Jew and Gentile alike. And so that's why I want to go straight from this point into the presentation of the uh, projects that we will be supporting in three weeks' time for World Mission Week. I think that Romans 9 to 11 is, above all else, a call to Christian mission. It is a call to recognize that God is working in Jew and Gentile alike to bring to Himself all those whom He chooses to bring to Himself. So I hope this presentation will show how we are trying to put this teaching into practice.